paid for, uh-huh. no car payment, uh-huh. at my arraignment, no for the plaintiff, the daughter's tied up in the Brooklyn basement, face it, not guilty, that's how I stay still, richer than rich, so you niggas come and get me, come on. Biggie, 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 can't you see, sometimes your words is hypnotized. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast, as always, I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Uh, this week's guest is Mr. Andrew Samtoy. We've known each other forever, basically, um, and have kept in touch uh, throughout our years. He sits down and has a conversation with me. We talk about interracial marriage, geographical philosophy, skinning bears, Russian Jesus, sticking it to the man, Freemasonry, seasonal books, artist lifestyles, keeping it real, the F word, Malcolm Eggs, and Welfare Week. So, um, we'll just get right into this thing. I won't fuck around too much. Uh, Andrew's super interesting, super smart, and uh, has been a big inspiration to me for, for a long time. Um, so, I'm sure he'll he'll pass some of that on to the listeners as well. Um, I'm going to plug some shit real quick before we get started. Uh, coming up this Saturday, um, January 8th, I have a show at Distinction Gallery. Uh, in Escondido, California. It's a three-person show with Daryl Pierce, uh, who is also uh, an ex-San Diego artist. I don't think he lives in San Diego anymore. Um, And another uh, talented artist whose name is eluding my brain right now. So um, I'll post that shit up in the blog. Make sure you go check that shit out. Um, You should follow me on Twitter at MikeMaxwellArt. And make sure you go and like the the fan page for the Live Free podcast on Facebook. Um, I post all the links up there and uh, info on each guest. And you can actually listen to the show there uh, right on Facebook, too. So check all that stuff out. It's good for you. Um, and without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Andrew Samtoy. Oh. So let's just do a couple little tests and see see if our voices are matching up good. All right. Testing. One, two, three. That looks pretty good. We look to be about the same level there. I slit the sheet, the sheet I slit, and on the slitted sheet I sit. Oh, shit. All right. Hey, uh, what's black and rhymes with Snoop Dogg? <laughs> Fuck, I don't know. What do you tell me? Dr. Dre. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up. <laughs> oh, that's your notepad? Yeah, I got a look. Yeah, so see, they're like the same as those, those yeah. panel pieces yeah. outside. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't you have like a moleskin or something that you'll, you can carry around? I got a few different things. <coughs> I got a lot of stuff. Because I would see you having a lot of those. Ideas. I got a notepad for you, actually, before you go. We okay. will have some parting gifts for you. Fantastic. So um, let's get right down to this thing. Thanks for doing the show. Absolutely. Appreciate Thanks for having it. me. Um, I'm going to show you this one thing first before we get started. Uh. I've been going through a bunch of my old stuff, right, um, from my mom's house. My mom moved, so like she's like, oh, look at this old box of your shit. <laughs> so I'm going to pull this thing up, and then I'm going to have you read it real quick. So just bear with me for a Is it something I did? Yeah. No shit. I bear with me. Get out of there. I curse on this, huh? Oh, no, you could, you could say whatever you want. Well, I, for posterity, I mean, like, well, if you feel like... my kids ever hear this? Well, I think that, uh, here we go. Wow. I think words are just words. So this is from Yeah, that's true. That's true. February 9th, 1988. 
The words of Andrew Samtoy. All right, let's see. 2988, VIP Mike M. I like Mike because he is funny and is fun. He is a good citizenship winner. He is a good athlete. He can play any sport. I hope he will stay till fifth grade. <laughs> Andrew Samtoy, 22. I think that was... Uh, that was my. We remember when we used to have numbers at WD Hall every year. Like they would give us numbers. I was thinking that it was the the classroom number. No, I think I think is, is yeah. It each one. Well, see, here's Lindsey no, Jones because it was sixteen. It was uh. It was by. I was always anywhere from like nineteen to twenty seven, depending on who else had last names. Oh yeah yeah yeah. So by you would have been yeah you would have been like sixteen or something uh-huh, probably right. whatever that was. How funny um, is that? That's well, you're funny. And we fun, have so. um, Bethany Dexter <coughs> is in here. Brian Wilcox. Whoa, what did he say? Mike is a very good citizen. He does very good work. He has good manners. He doesn't bug anyone. <laughs> he was 32. Yeah, W32. So. Let's see who else is. Uh, I'm sure some wow. of the, some of these people are on my Facebook for sure. I wanted to scan some of these and put them up. Uh, Kenny Huff. Uh, Robert Tom Keel. He's uh he's in like Indianapolis now. And there's That's you me. again, Lindsey Jones, Stacy Hannacamp. Uh, She's on my. Uh... Mike is a hardworking person. He is one of the two that go to lunch early. He has a lot of chips. Chips. I carry chips. Apparently. He doesn't have a favorite food. He has a lot of best friends. So like we wow. would do, we I don't really remember this, but I guess if we got like VIP person, we had some sort of interview. <laughs> With everybody, like somebody came up and we had a series of questions that we asked the person and then must have wrote these out. You don't think it was one of those things where like every we did it for everybody in the class? No, I, well, because this was, huh. this is the VIP. So I remember ah. we'd be like, so maybe there was like one a week. You know, I'm sure eventually everybody must have got one of these. Interesting. But the way, if, as you go through, you see that... Uh, that there's some like repetitive questions. That's like, hilarious. Mike likes fluorescent green or whatever. <laughs> like that comes up a few times. And then let's see if the, you go to lunch early every day, huh? So here's the uh, application. I guess we had to apply to get the the very important person. So your favorite food was steak. Favorite TGV show, Alf. Yeah. So fluorescent green was your favorite color. Yeah. You like to go places. With batteries not included, that was a that, what was it? That was the thing where those little robots. It was like little robots that flew around. They were like beetle type looking <laughs> things. Do you remember that? No. Favorite place to eat? Go to nose. Ha! Uh, it's Gaitanos. That, <laughs> that's somebody who is eight years old trying to sell Gaitanos. Go to, to nose. nose. Gaitanos. Wow. Pretty serious, huh? That's sweet, man. Oh, wait. Let's see what Miss Keating wrote. She said, Mike Maxwell has earned this very important certi- important person certificate for being such a sweet, hardworking boy. Mike's nice to everyone and has many friends. She sounds the same as the the second graders. The third yeah. Graders. Yeah. Better handwriting, probably. Yeah, that's... that's She's it. still friends with my mom. Oh, really? Yeah, they like hang out regularly. I wonder if she, maybe she'll hear it. We, maybe. Should, we should tell her to listen to the podcast. I'll, yeah, I'll send an address to her. All right, now let's get real. What do I do with my cheat sheet? <laughs> Did you steal my cheat sheet? No, what's that? Your list? Yeah. There you go. Try to hide my cheat <coughs> sheet from me. Um, 
Let's talk about your early life. What are your folks like? Talk whoa, about your folks. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that too um, deep? Is that too, no, is that too personal? I didn't, I didn't well, let's start right from the beginning, man. Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, my uh, dad is from Africa. Uh, he grew up on a small island called Mauritius. And my mom is from Staten Island, New York. Um, and they met... My, uh, my mom was a nurse and my dad was a doctor. They were working at the same hospital. And my mom and her roommate her roommate was a nurse too and they had a party for all of the doctors that um they wanted to date and uh, my dad was the first one to call her back nice and so yeah um so i was born in lorraine ohio which is right outside now wait Cleveland. real quick uh w- was your dad a doctor in africa before he no, came here he wanted when did he, when did he come from sure america? he won a game show um a tell like there was an annual televised game show and the winners it was like it was like Glengarry Glen Ross. The winners got like full rides to, to um, a medic like a, a university in France, and wow. the losers got like a set of steak knives. Oh, it was shit. like first place. You're like you get a degree, a higher education degree that you can't get in Mauritius. Second place, you work in a sugar cane field, and so he. Um, Man, what a stroke of luck! Yeah, what was the competition? no, he was. It was a it was a knowledge competition. Oh, okay. Apparently, he answered every single question for his team. Um, he was, he was like the top student in the country or something. So, hmm. um, he won that. He ended up going to medical school in France and then, um, moved to the U S. Um, so he was super smart. He probably would have figured out how to not work in the, the cane fields. Well, yeah, no, he was, he was really smart, but, um, it was, it was one of those things like, who knows what he would have ended up doing. Yeah. It's hard to say. It right? was that he got, he ended up at a medical school. But it seems like people who have that sort of creative mind already will if one thing doesn't work out, they'll figure out another way to do yeah. what it is that they yeah. what they feel like they're supposed to do. But they right? blew. I guess they blew out the other team, and so yeah. So, that's that's interesting. That's crazy, yeah. right? So I was born out. Well, um, one of the one of the um, reoccurring themes on the show is um, we talk about uh, race a lot, and so okay. So I know you have uh, interracial parents, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, my dad's Chinese and black, like a very, very small percentage black, and my mom's like one hundred percent Polish. Did you did you find uh, what what was that an issue for you at all growing up? It's funny. Uh, I remember. I think it was fourth grade because we went to to elementary school together. Right. We've we've known each other since second grade, which is that's like when you what? moved here. Uh no, I was born here. But I went to Rios Canyon for kindergarten and first grade. Oh, okay. WD Hall okay. for second grade. <clears throat> yeah, so um, uh, it's I think in fourth grade we had some like, we had something where, um, I think it was Mrs. Thatcher, wanted like she made all the kids come to school with all of the all like the countries where their parents were like their their lineage. Uh huh. So if you were Irish, <clears throat> English, Dutch, German, and uh swedish you'd you'd ask your parents where where what's my history and then and then they would tell you where and then you would mark off on the on the board where you were from uh-huh. and so for me being chinese like my dad being chinese was never um an issue because nobody ever like really cared it was all the Polak jokes uh-huh. that got to me so i was like totally fine marking chinese down but like yeah. when i marked down polish i was like oh people are gonna make fun of me isn't being that Polak. strange so it was it was really weird like and my dad said he never he if he he doesn't feel like he ever faced any racism in the u.s and if he did he just didn't notice yeah um but for me when i was young it was being polish that was like the shameful bit 
Oh, weird. Um, because there were so many Pollock jokes yeah. at WD Hall. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so the race thing, like, it's never been an issue. Um, and even now, it's one of those things where... Um, what do you th- where do you think that lineage, or that, that uh, like, set of jokes came from, for, like, to assume that, that Polish people are dumb? Supposedly it was... The, what I heard was that it was... Because Poland is a very flat country, it was easy to take over. So, um... The Russians would take it for a while, and then the Germans would take it, and then the Swedes would take it. And they're like, basically, whoever the invader was, they didn't have to face mountains or anything, so they could just roll across the country. Yeah. And the idea being that the Polish couldn't defend themselves very well, so they must have been stupid. Um, that's that's what I've heard. I don't, that I don't know if that's true. Yeah, that makes sense. I figured it had to be some sort of military might scenario. Maybe, yeah. I But now, it's yeah, it's one of, the, it's, um, it's one of those things. Now, what about um, amongst like your grandparents? Did did your father or your mother have uh, traditional parents in in having you know with with some uh, with some older generations? There, there's this uh, tendency to want to keep lineages um, pure. Almost was there, you know, and and I think some people may catch some flack from like in laws or something when when say maybe they date outside the race. I know. I know that's happened inside of not my immediate family, but you know my general large family that there's been those types of issues before. Do you think was there anything like that for your mom or your dad? For um, it wasn't my my mother's parents were fine with her um, marrying my dad. It was more my dad's family that um didn't really want him to marry a white woman. Well, there's that Chinese like traditionalist. Yeah. The Asians, of. the Asians like um, the Asian families they can be very very racist. Um, they can they can be, and not not all of them, but um, and especially not the younger generations now. But there right. there's a lot of emphasis, especially. I one of my friends right now uh, is marrying. She's marrying a white guy, who's also Polish actually. Uh, she's Korean, and her family is giving her a lot of flack right now, just because they they're fresh off the boat, mm-hmm. and they're saying well, you need to find a Korean guy. Right. And she's like, well, that's not, I haven't found any, and this is the guy I love, so. Yeah, it was mostly, for, for me, it was mostly my dad's family that actually didn't want him to marry a white woman. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's nice that all that stuff is disappearing, huh? As these, as our generations move on, but, you know, maybe it still lingers, but yeah, I don't it know seems to be less of, a, less of a significant issue. I don't know. I, I think, let me, yes. maybe Let me try to rephrase, rephrase that. Maybe it's less of a hot button topic as maybe it used to be, or it's less uh, emotional as as it may have been in the past. Yeah, maybe. I just I think that um, it's it for for a lot of people, yes. But I think there are like there are when it does come up, it's very very passionate. I mean, well, did you have you noticed any of those sorts of things with? Uh, I mean, let's face it. We we grew up in El Cajon, which is. Uh-huh predominantly white middle class right well i mean there's a lot of mexicans here so let's say in terms of like when we were in school yeah sure oh yeah it was mostly white people right absolutely did you feel did you feel connected or did did you feel different in how you know never never i never felt i mean like like any sort of separation where it's like i have this little bit of different lineage like no, um, yeah, no, I've never, I, that's, and it, it's almost a problem for me because, um, I've never, 
there's the people that have very like they're a 16th irish and they feel very very strongly that they're irish yeah um there's yeah. a great onion article about this guy who was yeah he's like a, a very small percentage irish but suddenly he um he celebrates saint patrick's day every day and only drinks <laughs> yeah. guinness right uh, or and like or jameson's or whatever it is and um his his sister thinks it's ridiculous that he's celebrating his Irish heritage when he's also like a 32nd Cherokee. And that's <laughs> yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I almost feel like it, because it was never, it was a fact and it was never, it was never something that could be debated. It was never anything that I actually was interested in pursuing. I was never interested in studying Polish history or Chinese history yeah. specifically because it was uh, part of my lineage. Um, and I, I, I just ask you that generally. I, I don't really. I never got that sense from you at all. Like yeah, feeling yeah. uncomfortable in any sort of certain circumstances. Right, and I think maybe maybe that because it wasn't important to me, I didn't feel like it should be important to other people, and so it wasn't something I dwelled upon when I was meeting people. Because obviously, you're you were a, a good student, right? Um, no, actually, I've been thinking a lot about that. Actually, uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. I remember when I was a junior. They were pressuring us to. Um, they were pressuring us to pick colleges that we were going to apply to, and it was never the idea of going to college for me was never an option. It was always something I would do, and I I remember back then realizing that for a lot of people that that was when I first realized actually that for a lot of people, it wasn't something that was preordained. Um, that it was something that might be optional, but there was a chance that would they would never go to college. For me, it was something that it wasn't whether I would go to college; it was where I would get in and where I would go. Um, but I never felt like it was a pressure, and I do remember wanting to take two years off and go to community college and work before I ended up actually applying to colleges because I thought that would give me valuable life experience before moving in. It would be kind of like the the British uh, system of gap years where they take some time off and they go do something for a year before they go to university. Uh -huh. um, so for, for me, there, I guess there was, it was pressure, but it wasn't, it wasn't like my parents told me I had to do good. Yeah. It was just what you did in, in school. You always tried to do good. I definitely wasn't, um, I was never a contender for valedictorian, for example. Right. Um, I think it was like Stacy Hanekamp, who's in there, uh -huh. and uh, Tyler... Green or Tyler Macy, I can't remember which one, um, was number two in the class. I was never in that in that group. Yeah. Um, but it was just assumed that you would try to get good grades because what's the point of going to school if you're not going to try to do good? Like if you're going to spend your time doing it, you might as well do it well. Yeah. Um, but for example, in college, I would never was a contender for getting honors. Um, well, let's uh, let's talk about that. So so we went to Granite Hills. Let's went to Granite Hills. And then um, you decided on a college. At, yeah, at a school. It was. Did you uh, take your gap year? No, I didn't. I went straight to school. Um, I ended up going to Pitzer College, which is in Claremont, California. Uh, it was between Pitzer and Occidental, really. Um, UCS. I got into UCSD also, but I didn't really want to go to a big. I didn't want to go to school in San Diego. Um, yeah. Because we're we're too familiar with it. It would be uh -huh. too close to home. Um, I wanted to have a little space. So it was yeah. I went up to L.A. And while you're, well, how long were you? You were in L.A. for four years. No, um, more or less. I went. I was there for my first two years, and then I spent uh, a year abroad in Cardiff, Wales. 
at the University of Colorado. What was that like? It was amazing. Um, I actually was only supposed to spend a semester there, but I ended up, the only reason I chose it was because I was going to get to stay away for a year. Um, I was going through like my first real big breakup uh-huh. and I wanted to get out of the country because I was so <clears throat> devastated and um, alone. And, uh, yeah, so and that's wanted... <laughs> a real romantic idea, right? Yeah, so I, I like wanted to... The heartbroken to... boy right. runs off to Paris or right. London and right. Spain. Whatever it is. So I ended up, yeah, I ended up in uh, <laughs> in Cardiff for a semester. And then the reason I chose Cardiff, I could go for a year and go there and then go to Spain to study Spanish. Uh, and then also Cardiff had a rowing team. And it was one of those things like we never had a river or a lake where we could <laughs> row here. Yeah. Because there's no water. Yeah. So uh, I was like, it was amazing to me. Well, we have bodies of water. You just have to have motors, motor right. vehicles to, to sure utilize them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was so it was like basically, um, wow, I can go to a, a college with a rowing team. But let let's uh, let's be clear that there is a rowing thing over on Fiesta Island on the bay. On the bay. Yes, but to me that's that's almost like it's like the San Diegans adopting something to the the reality of Southern California. Like that's not where rowing started, and that's not, not the, the that's not the type of of rowing that we're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I know that, and I mean I know that the teams here are really amazing, but um, yeah, they're gonna come after you now. Yeah, I'm gonna send this tape. <laughs> I want it, but I want it. I San Diego it Rowing Association. Yeah, so I was um, I lived down the down the block from them actually for a while. I um, so I ended up there, and then I joined the rowing team. Uh, stayed with it. We started with eighty five guys, I think eighty seven guys, and uh, within two months we were down to fourteen, because uh, the the attrition uh-huh. rate was so high. Yeah. Um, it was it was really tough, but after a semester, I just thought to myself, I can't leave, and so I didn't even apply to the other school. I made them uh, let me stay at Carter for a year. Um, nice. And so, um, so I was out there for a year, um, and it was, I I still go back there. I was uh, in August. I was there for one of my best friend's weddings uh, from the rowing team. I mean, I still yes. This morning I was having cravings for Welsh cakes, um, which are a pastry that's out there that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, <laughs> I still think about it regularly, and it was yeah. it was one of the best years I ever had. So can you talk about how you got into the fraternal organization? Thing? Sure. So I would assume it started with. College, right? I'm making assumptions. No, there is no fraternity. Say, say it's right. The fraternities, uh, <laughs> the fraternities in, in in Claremont were basically like um, excuses to drink and smoke weed, uh-huh. uh, and I was never part of those scenes, so um, I never got involved with the fraternities there. Uh, but I, a few of my friends from high school were living in LA, and um, they brought me up to their house one day, and it was at the top of the highest hill in Silver Lake, which is, I think, the highest hill in the L.A. Basin, uh, to this house. It's called the Paramore. Uh, owned and run, at least back then, by Dana Hollister, uh, who was an amazing interior designer. Which I've been, I went to a party at that house. Oh, really? Like when? A, a, a crazy Hollywood party. Yeah, sure. Yeah, for this, it was a, a benefit for the Silver Lake um, Free Clinic. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Beck played in the back. Of course. I yeah. introduced myself to Mike D in a drunken uh-huh. fucking mess of a stupor. Uh-huh. That I, I clearly had to have embarrassed myself. <laughs> yeah, they um all those guys party there. I mean, I think um for a while I was sleeping in the same bed that Beck would sleep in when he had his birthday parties there or something. Like in fact, like I that. uh I got wild. Too. I was I was shit house drunk at that party. Like I drank like eight bass ales to the head, and bass ales just put it to me. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'm 22 at this, like, crazy... 21, maybe. Were you there with uh, that guy, Jack? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There was this little table and this little side door by the pool that led to the staircase that went up yes. to the top room. That was where Jack was living. Well... They had cleared off of, there was a little food table right out in front of the, that little door right there, uh -huh. and they had cleared it away, and I was like, well, that seems to be an, an off-limits area. Why don't I go investigate? <laughs> so I just opened the door and walked up this little spiral staircase and ended up in, like, the VIP room. Yep. yep. So Christina Ricci was up there, like, doing coke in the bathroom. <laughs> um, I was having a conversation with... Uh, uh, Rufus Wainwright. No nah, shit. I didn't even know who he was at the time. Awesome. And uh, was just shooting the shit with people or whatever. Like, I I was... God, I must have been acting like such an ass. But I think I'm I, I'm pretty cool, so I'm, I probably wasn't that <laughs> bad. But, you know, 21-year-old Mike, while and out, was probably pretty serious. But it was a hell of an experience. But that yeah. house is amazing. They filmed a lot of... Um, Reality television there too, yeah. and movies and stuff. And I music think videos. Um, Stigmata was filmed there. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. One of them, I think the one with the. It was the one with the, one of the Arquettes, right? The blonde Arquette. I have no there. idea. Yeah, they filmed that there. Yeah. And some weird ass reality shows. <laughs> no, it's a yeah. great. I mean, it's a beautiful house, but it was built by Freemasons. Okay. Um. It was, and so yeah, I mean, like the first, yeah, the first time I was there, I remember. Uh, Ashton Kutcher and Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. were doing a photo shoot there. And I had no idea who either of them were. And uh, Ashton was being an asshole, so I called him an asshole. <laughs> and then, like, I wasn't, yeah. even, and I wasn't even drinking. I was just uh -huh. like, you're being an asshole. Yeah. Um, and no, I did, he was kind of shocked. And then uh, someone took him out of the, out of the kitchen. Um, but it was, all, it was built by Freemasons. And so that was my first experience. Like, the only other experience I'd had... This girl named Kim at college was handing out like anti-Masonic literature in the dining hall one day, and I had no idea what she was talking what, about. Do you know what the literature was? Do you remember? It was like how like um, it was how the dollar bill is all Masonic in there. Uh, like conspiracy theory. Oh based yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was totally conspiracy theory uh -huh. stuff, and I was just like, I really don't care about this, and I think you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then my second experience was at that house and seeing like the beautiful architecture that was created by the Freemasons. Mm -hmm. um, and then I moved up to Portland after college and I was working on a gubernatorial campaign up there. And um, one day I was getting on the bus at 28th and Powell and this old guy got on uh, or he was trying to make it up his way up the stairs. So I like helped him up uh, because he was having a lot of trouble and he mm -hmm. ended up sitting next to me and I noticed his ring and I was like, Oh, are you a Freemason? And he's like, he just said, oh, yeah. And so we talked about it for a while. And uh, when I got off the bus, he gave me his number and just said, hey, you should think about joining. So I called him up a couple times, and it, uh, then he stopped answering. Um, and so I sort of lost interest. And then my buddy John, I moved back to San Diego. And my buddy John in Los Angeles called me one day, and he just said, hey, I'm joining this fraternity, and I think you should look into it. And I, I was like, okay, tell me about it. And he started talking about the Freemasons. And I just said, oh, okay. I know something about this. Yeah. So. And at this point, let's say, <coughs> how limited was your your information? Like, how, where, had you put a little bit of thought into it? 
before this conversation with John? Yes. I mean, in especially in Portland, I'd looked into it uh, in some depth, and I was interested, but okay, the only yeah. connection I had to lodges up there was somebody who just sort of disappeared. I'm, right, I'm right. pretty sure he probably died. Yeah. Um, and there was one of my friends was working at a brew pub that was built in the old Masonic Hall, um, like the old Grand Lodge in Oregon. Uh-huh. So um, I had put some thought and effort into researching it and I was interested. I just didn't have a connection. Did you happen to make any connections to like when we were kids, like events that happened at the Masonic Hall here in El Cajon? Did you connect your did your mind go back to any no, of that not at, at all? all? Not yeah. at all. Did that happen to you or Yeah. Really? Like yeah. what? Well remember we used to have dances there. We would have dances in the Oh uh, dude that wasn't in the cool hall. enough. Oh come on. I definitely yeah. didn't go to those. No there I wanna say maybe Maybe it was junior high. It was it was junior high because obviously I was, was not a cool kid in junior high. Right. I will tell you that. <laughs> anyway, so so I, you you link up with your buddy John. Mm-hmm. And he um he joined and then I had to wait to join because there was a residency requirement of a year in California to join the Blue Lodges. Oh, okay. So um I ended up well, yeah i ended up waiting for until i was i'd been in in the states for or in california for a year and then um went through the degrees over the course of a few months you feel like it's improved you as a man in ways that maybe without it you might not have have obtained or obtained as quickly i think it's sort of like this podcast in a way because there's an emphasis on personal development and you were saying earlier about how one of the points of the podcast is to have a con like a real conversation and a real connection with somebody mm-hmm. and sit down and talk to somebody and have sort of like a philosophical discussion that you might not otherwise have. Right. I think ideally in Freemasonry, it's one of those things where they might not necessarily punch it into your head that you need to study certain things or learn about certain things. But the kinds of people that join generally seem to be the ones that are interested in bettering themselves and who want to learn things that you might not necessarily learn in in normal day life or that other people, especially, I mean to generalize, but especially in Southern California, it doesn't seem like there's a heavy emphasis on people having philosophical development. Um, the people spend a lot of their time outside. Uh-huh. Uh, they spend a lot of their time doing things like sports, recreation, right? Right, but they don't. They don't necessarily sit down with um, a book or even think about sitting down with a book that goes through philosophical ideas or history or art. And I think that one of the things that I got out of my time in masonry um, is the idea that you can sit down and study these things. And even though it might not get you anything in the short term, that it's valuable in and of itself. Right. So I think that that's one thing. That, and again, back to the podcast, that, that exact phrase is what this is about. Like, this is valuable in and of itself. Right, right. 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 Um, it's funny you say that about the like the idea that in in this particular culture or society, this Southern California culture, how 
it seems like that sort of philosophical conversation is lacking a lot of times. Like, I, I make this point about how great San Francisco is, which I don't want to shit on San Diego because I know we're going we're gonna to do that when we talk about Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, the, I, I've noticed... When I when I talk about San Francisco, I'll I'll say I'll walk by a group of people having um, dinner at a table, you know, out on a patio at a restaurant, and just overhearing the, the type of conversation that is being had over a meal, a nice, mm-hmm. exquisite meal with among some people who probably read some books, is, yeah. is much more interesting <laughs> than a lot of the conversations I hear at the taco shop, you know, in El Cajon, sure. right? And I think I've always, I've had a theory for a long time that there is a difference. It's a, it's a difference in latitude in that, or I think it's latitude or longitude, whatever the North South. One of the lines. The ones that go around the world. We're say we're at 38th. Um, basically when you're in a, when you're in a area where it's nice out all the time and like, like Southern California, mm-hmm. there's an emphasis on being outside and doing stuff. Right. And, um, and because you're outside and you're doing stuff, you're wearing less clothes, which means that people are much more conscious of how they look. Uh-huh. And so they're, they're working out and they're paying attention to how they look and what they're doing. Yeah. When you're in an, uh, uh, an area that has weather, there's a lot of times where you're going to have to stay inside right. unless you're doing snowshoeing or, or, uh, or skiing or whatever. Yeah. You, there's a lot of times where you stay inside and maybe you read books, you watch movies or television you play games, um, you talk to people. Right. And here, I don't, I think that, I don't know that one is better than the other, but um, here, at least, I feel like the emphasis is on appearance and doing stuff. And parti- like, and I think in, in northern climates, uh, it, there's, there's emphasis on that in the summer, but at the same time, there's a little bit more culture uh-huh. uh, and emphasis on learning things. That's and, interesting. And, I've, I've never really thought <laughs> about it that way in terms of... Uh, the way we utilize our time because um, for me you know I utilize my time a lot in much the same way that somebody who is living in a, a weather uh, a, a nasty weather occurring city would spend their time <laughs> right like a lot of my time is indoors reading watching films mm-hmm. doing my work right um, which maybe that's why you like San Francisco is that that's what people there do. Yeah. And so what you're you're much like even though I know you love San Diego, it's the ty- it's the type of culture uh, up north that you wouldn't necessarily get um, here or yeah. Arizona. Or Texas but that's or with that said, it, I think it's important to also note that that I think that the reward systems that we we have built in for these things. So like when we read a book and gain a little bit of knowledge, we have some sort of like natural reward system in our body and in our brain that, that tells us that that's a good thing. Okay. Um, and, but I think people who go outside and, and entertain themselves and, and do like sports and, and those sorts of things, I think, I think they're getting those same rewards, but just in a, in a different facet. Of course. Like it, of it's course. just as, in, just as important. And I know you, you, you preface that right. by saying not one is important, more important than the other. But it's, it's also social too, because, um, up North in San Francisco, the Bay area, there's, a, if you are smart and you've read the right books, your social rewards are that you interact with people that have done the same right, thing. Right. Whereas here, if you, uh, you're, and, and also, I mean, it's sexual too, because you're, you're having, uh, 
uh, I, w I was going to say breeding opportunities, but you're going to have sexual encounters with people that also, that's how you meet people. It's Whereas like the, here, the peacock dance, right? Right. And here yeah. you're, you're, you're hiking with the same people. So you meet, you're going to meet a girl on Cal's mountain or, <laughs> right. whatever, or God's rock. And, yeah. um, you run into them two or three times. You start a conversation, um, those sorts of things. I mean, it's, it's, it gets back to the, the social rewards that mm -hmm. it's not just internal, like, like that. Yeah. the thing that the, Hold on, pause right yeah, there. Of course. I'm going to let my dog go pee real quick. He's a sun lover. He just wanted to go hang out. Well, so here's here's the contrary pro the problem that I have though at the same time is that if you look at history most of the lasting philosophical systems and moral systems I think uh, that have spread around the world have come from areas where like areas where it wasn't nasty all the time um, and I'm thinking about Israel and uh, India uh -huh. where Buddhism Christianity uh, Islam Judaism, the ones that have, have spread throughout the world were in places where, and I think historically, though, that the difference is that back then people didn't have, in the northern climates, they had to spend a significant amount of their days just surviving. Yeah. Whereas in these, in the southern climates, the equatorial areas, they were able to sit around and think about philosophical stuff. So I think there's been a change over time that um, Jesus probably wouldn't have emerged from Moscow. Uh, or I, I, And it's just, it's one of those things that yeah, yeah, he, he would have had to have gone out and slain bears to get, to get uh, uh, pelts to wear in the winter because, and that, that's where he would have spent most of his time as opposed to going for 40 days or whatever it was and staying in the desert and mm -hmm. um, talking to the devil uh, and, and tempting himself and, and all the rest of it. Um, that the lasting, the lasting widespread religions have come from our climates, and nowadays, I, maybe maybe there's ideas that are coming out from from um, the the southern climates that are lasting and are going to have impacts. But I think uh, it's a little bit different now because the people in those in those climates don't think as much about those issues because yeah. they're doing other things. Most people don't have that time. As a, as a creative person, I have a ton of time to shut my brain down and go into a sort of meditative state, right? Okay. So for us to, to get into these really deep philosophical states, we have to have uh, the capabilities to shut down all the other processes of thinking. And so with sensory deprivation, uh, that's a sort of natural way to go about shutting down some of the brain processes because we shut down our sight, our sound, mm -hmm. and our sense of touch. So that opens up your brain is like, ooh, I don't have to worry about those senses anymore. I can I can utilize these other functions of the brain. And if people are are all day thinking about their jobs and thinking about money and thinking about debt, they don't have that time to shut down and let the brain kind of think on its own. Where yeah. people who say, if you meditate, people who who make art, um, people who do mantras, and even people who go play sports, I think I, I get a very serene sense of free thought when mm -hmm. I golf. Because sure. there isn't anything else in my mind except for <laughs> hitting this ball, the grass, the birds, the sounds... Mm -hmm. All that stuff is all just this serene, peaceful sort of meditative phase that I can get to. So it seems though it, it it's more about the amount of time we have to think. So if in back in the day when we were just surviving, 
not like just surviving, but you know, when we were focused on the labor of the day to, to create food for, so that our family could eat, you know, if you're working in the farm, uh, you're, you're, you're working towards survival. You're not working towards, uh, gaining a dollar bill. I think in that process that it becomes similar to the meditative phases that I'm talking about, um, in terms of, uh, processes to give your brain a, a second to, to think freely. So and I think we get it from exercise, uh, like running tends to do that where all of a sudden all these new thoughts and ideas can arise. A lot of creativity comes from that mm -hmm. because of the lack of, of, I like to think of it as sort of like, um, trash thought like thought that's kind of in the way it's a part of our daily routines that help us get by and survive in this modern society but it's a little bit of um just some garbage in the way like, well but going back to that point then what i hear you saying is that if we were to take if we were to take my example of lasting worldwide philosophies coming from southern climates uh not from northern climates i mean we don't have a lot of people that are following odin um what you're saying is that the people that were following Odin in Scandinavia were actually more living a philosophy where they didn't need to look for morality because morality was survival. And in southern climates, they had concerns like paying mortgage and all the rest of it. And so their brains were more cluttered and they didn't have time to do that, that philosophical reflection or they had... They didn't have the time to do the philosophical reflection, so they had to make it. Whereas uh, in the north, when people were hunting bears or, or deer or rabbits, that was their philosophy, and they had that waiting was the time to think about life. It's one of those things like uh, if you have a suit, like what's the, there's a rule that if you have a suitcase and you're going on a trip, you're going to fill it. If you have a certain amount of money to spend, um, if you have a budget, you're going to spend all of your money. Like, if you have a plate full of food, you're going to eat you're it. You're going to try to eat it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's one of those. I think back then, if you have a if you have a day and certain things to think about, I'm sure that people back in in Rome, ancient Rome, they had just as much stuff to think about yeah. as we do, and they had as many they had as many problems. And the fact that these religions uh, or philosophies have evolved and or come up and evolved over time indicates that. People back then were also looking for answers to how they could better their lives. It takes an extraordinary person to come up with a with a world changing philosophy, yeah. and maybe we have those people around us. Using military might is is a good example. So let's talk like say for instance Vietnam. The Vietnam War was really put and was really stopped by the by the soldiers who philosophically realized that what they were doing was was wrong and immorally wrong and chose not to fight anymore which was the catalyst to stopping the war not not any presidential uh issues or, or any of that it was actually the people engaged in the fighting who decided to say hey this isn't right and what and and we're just killing innocent people and this, this is wrong and we need to stop doing this and and there became a revolt where people started uh uh, soldiers started killing their their generals and their sergeants and shit because they were refusing to do these things and it caused uh, a fragging it caused a huge internal uh problem that sure. that eventually was the the solution to stopping that war which hmm. um isn't really talked about very often
you study law now. You're a lawyer, right? Yes. Or you practice law. I practice me. law. You studied it already. I studied for it and graduated in 2008. How's that going? It's good. It's good. Um, it's one of those. Are things... you a prick lawyer, or are you like? Oh yeah. Are you like the stereotypical like oh, that guy's an asshole? Yeah, generally. Speaking, sure. <laughs> um, or do you stick it to the man? I'd like to hear you. You stick it to. Well, the man. what 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 I do is class actions in Ohio. So basically, um, giant lawsuits against big corporations for lots of money uh, on behalf of consumers who lost a little bit of money. Uh, and it's basically, who do you have for a cell phone company? Verizon. Okay, so Verizon, um, for a while, they were charging, or there were charges on people's bills for third-party charges. And basically, another company would get your phone number and tell Verizon, uh, Mike Maxwell at 619-287-4619. Uh, he, That's not my phone number, by the way. Right, but he um he signed up for our service, so you need to charge him ten bucks a month on top of his bill. And Verizon would say, okay, so they'd put a charge on your bill. And generally speaking, people don't notice yeah. when their bills go up, and then it, it evens out. So if you were paying fifty nine dollars, and then one month you pay sixty nine, generally people don't look into it. And then after three months of paying sixty nine, that becomes the new normal. So you are your your paying 69 mm -hmm. and it doesn't really make that much of a difference yeah, and it's right. normal to you. So if you ever did look, you'd see something called a data charge on your phone. And if you looked into it, you would find it was coming from uh, Windsor Newton. And you say to yourself, what's Windsor Newton? Yeah. And if you actually called them, they would say, oh, this is a third party charge that you contracted for. <laughs> and, um, you would say, no, I've never heard of this company before. I want to cancel this. And they say, well, you're going to have to bring it up with them because it's not our responsibility. So you don't know who these people are or how to stop these wow. charges. And this is something that occurs. Oh, yeah. It's occurred on almost all the um, all the cell phone carriers. Wow. So um, they're getting, say Verizon's getting 33%. So they're getting $3.33 for everybody that do, does it. So it's not in their interests yeah, to, do, right. to stop it because they're getting millions of dollars every month from yeah. this. Other companies are getting twice as much money and uh, the consumers aren't even noticing. Yeah. Um, even though they've never signed up for it, they don't notice. So though like for example, that's that's one of the things. Um, we were also we How do now how do you go about finding those things out? A lot of times people will come to us and say, Hey, this is um, I I saw this charge on my bill. I don't know who it is. Wow. So it's just one person stands up and is like, this isn't right. A lot of times, yeah. And that's that's, that's awesome. the thing is that it's it's surprising to me that they're doing this to millions and millions of people across the country. Yeah. And five people out of 30 million look at their cell phone yeah. close yeah. enough to question this. We're so stupid. Um. So no, no, no. It's just, <laughs> it's one of those things. It's just people like it's, 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 it's. It's very clever on their part. I have a huge amount of respect for these companies because it's it's a very intelligent way to make money. Well, here's um, another. It's, it's let me let me tricky. give you a reference of uh, a personal story. I uh, and I think I may have told you this, but I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast yet. Okay. Um, and it's one of those things where somebody needs to stand up and say, "Go fuck yourself," to these big companies who just charge you, charge you, charge. Sure. Um, but in this case, it was the city of Santee. Um, I would take Pete for a walk at the park over um, at Mass Park. And the park would close at dusk every night. Now, dusk isn't really defined because it's a changing time all the time. Mm 
-hmm. as the world spins, we dust changes. So I had did a walk. I saw the sheriff pull into the parking lot. <laughs> we were finishing our walk. Uh, and it was, you know, 4.59 or something like that. The sun was still out. Sun hadn't gone down behind the mountains yet. But the sheriff was there on a Friday or something and wanted to get home early. So they're waiting. The sheriff parks in the car and waits for everybody to move their car so they can lock the gate. Mm -hmm. They have to lock the gate to the park. That's their, that's their big deal. I see. I see. So on their sign, it says park closes at dusk. So I get, to my, I get to my car, and I look, and they've given me a ticket, which was like a $30 ticket, right? Not mm -hmm. that much. So typically, I'm sure people would be like, oh, I fucked up. Pay the ticket. Right. And, but I'm like, well, I'm stubborn, and I have a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, this is bullshit, because I knew it wasn't <laughs> dusk yet. So I was like, well, I'm going to do a little investigation. So I go on to the, the Navy's website, and the Navy keeps track of... Um, Sunrise, high noon, nautical dusk. There's in fact there's a there's a number of different dusks. There's like nautical dusk, uh, horizontal dusk, or you know like okay. three different definitions of what dusk it really is. So I got all these things printed, all these things out. Uh, you know, got all the information of when dusk was. Mm -hmm. Showed that the ticket that I got was. Uh, 4.59 p.m. Was put ahead of what the Navy said desk was for that day. So mm -hmm. I got all this information, took pictures of the signs that said park closes at dusk with no information about actual timelines. Sure. Looked up the law that was the infraction number on mm -hmm. the ticket. There was no definitive timelines in, in the stated law of what dusk could be defined as okay. in particular times. Sure. Not written down. So I bring all this stuff down to the sheriff's office where you're supposed to go and pay your ticket. And I was like, I'm going to fight this. I'm not paying this ticket. And so it turned out they had all these loopholes that you had to jump through to, to say you're not going to pay the mm -hmm. ticket. And it turned out that the information that was on their website was, in fact, false. They had false information on how to go about doing this process. I show up at the city officials and was like, hey, your website is wrong. You're making me jump through all these loops. I went to the sheriff's office, and they looked at me like I was crazy, like they didn't know what I was talking about. They're like, you're not going to pay it? You're supposed to pay it here. I don't know how to tell you to not pay it, how to fight it. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Nobody knows what's going on. Wow. So what turned out to be the case, I had to go to the Santee City Hall, uh, tell them that I wanted to fight have to have my ticket reviewed that I wanted to fight it. Here's all my evidence and information. Uh -huh. I had to pay the um, fine to even get the review. So I had to give okay. them a $30 check. If my review came back that I had, uh, that I was still guilty of the infraction, then I would have to pay another fine to, to make up for, for the, the cost of what they had to, for them to go wow. over it. So I took the risk of having a double fine <laughs> to fight the first fine. Wow. And ended up beating it. They nice. they decided that I was in the right and sent my check back. <laughs> so but literally like it was ten headaches, yeah, hundred and fifty loops, right. loops to jump through. Right. And a risk of, of even greater losses. Yeah. Absolutely. But it worked. But it goes back to that thing again of where people who are on their daily track of right. paying the bills and going to work and putting gas in the car, mm -hmm. they're not going to take that time. They right. don't have that time to, to put that effort in. You right, know? right. And I think that that's the problem with this current society, and particularly maybe in Southern California. But um, I, I'm glad that you stick it to the man. 
you know, <laughs> go after these guys and, and look after the people. I, I mean, I think you're, Sorry. you know, you're, uh, you're kind of that type of guy. At least I perceive you as that type of guy anyway. Like, you know, like you said, you help the old man up the, up the stairs or, you know, you, you, t- you have a tendency to be looking out for, for your fellow man. Sure. As opposed sure. to, you know, what, what are stereotypical thoughts of a lawyer, like just trying to get money and, and be a crook and, and I don't think that's the thing. I don't think most lawyers aren't like that. Yeah, isn't that like, weird? That's the thing that it's like Pollocks, right? Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things. Save the lawyer. They're, they're not. They're not. Um, most people aren't like that. There's a few that give the other lawyers bad names, but um, most lawyers, most people get into the law to do good. I wonder if it's a um, uh, whatever that group like might a, be, like a smear campaign from these big corporations here. This case conspiratorial. Uh, putting this bad name on lawyers because it's the lawyers who are putting these class. Because when we think about it, we always think about these class action lawsuits or or lawsuits against like frivolous lawsuits against mm-hmm. one another that mm-hmm. puts that like lawyers try to get those cases. Right. Or at least that's right. the perception for you know us laymen. But even then, um, it's one of those things where the argument can easily be made that these people are doing good uh, against wrongdoers. Yeah, you just changed and my mind lawyers are supposed to be doing good for their clients yeah and um good lawyers will be doing good for their clients even if it means that somebody else is going to get um the short end of the stick yeah so and so you're out you're out in cleveland now when did you leave you when did you leave san diego um i moved out of san diego for college back in 97 i moved back in 2000 early 2002 uh and then i left San Diego again, I want to say 2003, late 2003, um, to move to, uh, maybe 2004 actually, to move to Spain. Uh, and then I lived in Barcelona for a year and then moved to Cleveland for law school. So um, in 2000, I started in Cleveland in 2005. Um, so. And everything's going good out there? Yeah, I love it. Nice. I love it. Um, um, let's talk, I know you, you do law to, to pay your bills, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but you have a, a more creative passion, right? Yeah. I love writing. And um, do you so, want to talk about that a little bit? You do, you do some, um, <coughs> some blogs and some stuff online. Sure. There's two, there's two, two, the two main ones. Um, we have the Cleveland sandwich board, which is Cleveland And that was actually started after I read the rise of the creative class. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being that creativity is what drives economies and the creative people are going to be the creative centers in the world are going to be, be the economic centers of the world. So the sandwich board, what we do is in theory and what I, in theory, what we're doing is we're reviewing restaurants mm-hmm. and the, the common theme between them all is that we only review sandwiches. Uh, and it was a direct takeoff from the London Review of Breakfasts, uh-huh. which is run by a great guy named uh, Malcolm Eggs. Um, <laughs> Can we preface this real quick? And, and, you know, by saying that you review restaurants, it could be a little bit misconstrued. It might be a little misleading. Uh, the, I, I, want, I know the things that I've read are more, to me, it seemed more like short stories that involved food. Right. And that's the thing that people, it's one of those things, we get comments on the board and people are... People are having huge issues with our what how we perceive the food, but when I'm talking to people that review for us, we have uh, over the course of the last three or four years, we've had probably twenty different reviewers, um, just contributing whenever they want to. Yeah, I'm always saying, look, the sandwich is the least important part of the sandwich review. 
what we want is a story. Yeah. And the, the whole idea being that we wanted to give people an outlet for creativity, commonly bound together by a single theme. Right. And so we want, we do want sandwich reviews, but we want them to have an outlet for their own creativity. Yeah. And so, Which I think is much more interesting <coughs> as opposed to like a Yelp review of a restaurant. Yeah. You know? And I find those, I mean, those, <clears throat> I'm not even going to say with all due respect, uh, because I don't respect <laughs> with them. With all due disrespect. With all due disrespect, the food bloggers and food reviews that focus on that stuff and the people that read them, I think, are very, very dull. Yeah. Um, I think that if they're looking, if the 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 food reviews where the people are taking pictures of the things that they're eating and they're talking like they're only focusing on the flavors i mean uh -huh. the the whole concept of being a foodie i think is ridiculous um and what we're what we're aiming for and what actually came out um someone at cleveland.com said that we had we maybe didn't focus enough on the restaurants but it the cleveland sandwich board was the best written food blog in cleveland and that was what that's that was the kind of thing that we yeah. were looking for. And we still get comments where people are saying like, "You totally got missed the boat on this restaurant," hmm. and they don't realize that the point isn't to have an accurate food good, review. Right. We want to have a good food review, right? Uh, and we want to have a good story, which, like I said, is much more interesting. <laughs> I uh, I yeah. started reviewing uh, weed shops, weed dispensaries <laughs> just recently. I started uh, putting my reviews in, but I've been I had. Now, now I'm like one of those Yelp guys that just reviews like the flavors <laughs> of things. So I, I don't, I'm digging myself a hole here. But uh, and, I started rating uh, the different strains like in like a wine rating system, which is also totally relatively arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, totally yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But really, for me, it's 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 mostly. Uh, frame a reference so that I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> and if you forget, you can be like, "Hey, can I use your internet? I need to look." Something <laughs> yeah, up I real need to quick. see what my uh, yeah. rating of <laughs> my, my previous was. thoughts. So the other one that we do is uh, Turning River, mm -hmm. um, which basically over every year over the summer I read three books. Uh, I start out with The Sun Also Rises uh, in May to June because I think it's a very good book to start off the summer with. Uh, and you read it every summer. Every summer. And then I, in July, August, the height, the, the warmest parts of summer, I read uh, The Great Gatsby, because that's a very good high summer book. Uh -huh. And then spring, or I'm sorry, September, October, I read uh, Tender is the Night, because that's a very good fall book. Um, and when I was reading The Sun Also Rises this year, I realized that one of the things that Hemingway did better than most authors was he wrote in the places as characters. Um, for example, he would the people felt like as the in personifying the the geographical locations, right? Yeah. So he would describe like he describes Paris, and then he describes Pamplona, and he describes uh, the Arati River that he fishes in. Uh -huh. And what the effect that it has is that people connect with the story. Um, they connect with the characters, but they also connect with the place. Well, it's it's so interesting that you brought that up, and that we were talking about San Francisco before, mm -hmm. and sort of my connection with San Francisco. I, uh, <coughs> I'm a huge Kerouac and Hunter S. Thompson fan. Okay. So I've totally romanticized the shit out of San Francisco <laughs> because it's the same thing. Uh, yeah. Kerouac, particularly Kerouac, yes. really turned San Francisco into like this living being yes. creature of a place Absolutely. that I knew all about before I ever even stepped foot there. Absolutely. And the effect of these writers is that people end up not being able to participate in the story. 
they even though the characters might be based on real people, they can't go back and talk to these people. They can't go back in time to when these authors are writing about. But what they can do is go to the places. So, right. for example, City Lights Bookstore. People go to City Lights simply because Kerouac was there. Yeah. Or Browdigan did a reading there. Or uh -huh. whoever it was. People are still going, like, what is it, 80 years later, people are still going to Paris and doing Hemingway tours. Right. And they're still going to Pamplona and staying in uh, whatever the hotel, Hotel Montoya was based on. Mm -hmm. um, they're still running through the streets thinking this is what Hemingway did and what he saw. Yeah. And the Turning River, the blog that we're doing, is basically, um, I don't have a lot of faith. There's a lot of, of campaigns in Cleveland which are based on the idea that we should be selling Cleveland to other people. Uh -huh. And so there's, there's advertisements, Cleveland Plus. Um, they're, they're, they're putting out these ads that are saying Cleveland's a great place to live. Yeah. There's a lot of pretty images, right. nice people, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that those really sell people on the idea of Cleveland. Yeah. Um, like people might see them and think, oh, Cleveland's nice. But they don't, that doesn't turn into... Yeah, anything. it's like those commercials on TV. Like, come visit Wisconsin. Right. Right. It's, it's not, it's, it's like, no, you're trying well, to trick, you're trying, it's like being used car salesman. Right. Action. How, <laughs> how much has that actually done for the state? Probably yeah, nothing. Not much. But I think that the power of fiction and stories. They get Jeff Bridges to narrate it. <laughs> what connection does he have? I, he's a wonderful actor. I love the guy. You know what I mean? But it's, I, I think that though, the, the Turning River, the idea being that what we're, we want to have the stories of Cleveland and identify particular places so that when people think of the corner of Mayfield and Murray Hill in Little Italy, they might, if they've read um, a story about Mia Bella, which is the restaurant on the corner there, Butte Great Restaurant, that they will remember the story where Mike Maxwell went there um, with his girlfriend Crystal and um, they had a meal there, and then something ha whatever it was happened, happened. But they'll remember, they'll see the bar, and they'll remember the characters sitting at the bar, yeah. or looking in the window, or whatever it was. Yeah. And so we're, we're rebranding through stories, rather than this, like an advertisement campaign. Mm -hmm. So the, the stated goal, really, and everybody seems to understand it, or at least the authors do it, and I hope that the readers might, but even if they don't, we're writing good stories, about particular areas that people will connect with emotionally yeah. and then carry that over into... I mean, if if we had busloads of tourists going to take pictures of, um, I don't know, Bar Cento in Ohio City just because they remembered a story there, yeah. that, would be, that would be fantastic. If, yeah. if, if a restaurant printed out one of the stories that we had or a store um, and they put it in the window just to say, hey, mm -hmm. this, is, this might refresh your memory about right. what happens here... That would be amazing to me. All right, that's it. my next <laughs> my next weed strain review. I'm gonna do a story I'll, uh, I'll, about uh, how high you got. No, no, no. I'll, <laughs> just about the experience. Sure. You know. Sure. Which I, I try. I like to try to do that a little bit anyway. But um, I'll make it more into something a little more creative, as opposed to just step one, step two, step three, <laughs> step four. Now I'm out the door. Um, you collect art, right? At I collect Mike mine. Maxwell's art. Nice. Uh, <laughs> you had you had just told me a story on Facebook just recently about uh, someone from your firm coming in and yeah. saying something. My boss um, came in and for whatever reason he it was the first time he'd been in my office and saw all of the art that I have like 
four or five of your paintings up on my wall. What do the pieces look like that you have? One is um, a skull and bones piece that ah. you did, the order. Um, and there's portraits of Columbus, Einstein, and Lincoln. Oh, nice. Um, so there's, I, and I think... I oh, you got the black another. and gray Einstein? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. with like blue that. eyes or something uh -huh. like that. Yeah. So he um he basically was walking or like pacing the office and then just saw one of them and just said, who the hell did this? And I was like, oh, my buddy Mike. Um, and I told him the story and he just was shocked. He just thought it was really, really phenomenal. Nice. Um, and so it was, yeah, and so he, he, um, he was asking a lot of questions about it. Do you have any plans to, to acquire more stuff, maybe from other people? <laughs> you can give me all the money you want, but I mean, maybe from other people. Do you have any uh, aspirations? To be to... an art collector? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, what I like about, and this is the story, what I like about your stuff is I know your story, and I know, I mean, we have a personal connection. It doesn't right. matter. I mean, I love the art itself, Yeah. but I wouldn't necessarily have bought the same stuff. I wouldn't have bought those if I didn't know... The artist yeah um, and even though they're amazing pictures and you've done you've done other amazing pieces that I have in my house yeah um, because I don't really care about um, I don't want to buy art just to have art I want to buy art that I have a connection with yeah and that's it's the same with Which, all the other this stuff is an I interesting have. point that you bring up and something that I've been thinking about a lot lately um, in terms of the art world and how how um, popularity uh, occurs and it, it's interesting how personality really does become a part of the work um, and is almost it's it's something wholly separate from the creation process but the the person how how often in history that the personality of the artist has come into play in terms of their overall story where as an artist like a lot of us like try to keep this pure idea that it's all about the work uh -huh. that it doesn't have anything to do with me and how I act at a party or or what kind of conversation I have with you <laughs> but now that you say this it brings up the thought that you know maybe this is a more important aspect of it that that isn't always uh, talked about or or acknowledged as, as part of the art process because I was saying before that this podcast has a lot to do with my solitary confinement in the work mm -hmm. that I do I spend a lot of time by myself, so I'm not interacting, and I'm not, I'm 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 older. I'm not going to a lot of parties and getting wild. So, a lot of the people who are actually buying my work don't know my personality, besides what I put out on the internet or what what you can sure. find about me. Which there's plenty out there now that you can get a good sense of what type of person I am just by right. googling me. Right. Um, but it's it's one of those things too. It sounds now that you mention that people buy or people that buy picassos it's not just they look at the picture and they love it they also understand his story and the womanizing and the 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 fact that they they are purchasing a part of what they feel is history yeah or dali or van gogh i mean everybody knows or van gogh everybody knows you that can he, say van gogh here van gogh <laughs> everybody knows that van gogh uh cut off his ear i think did he commit suicide uh he didn't sell any paintings when he was alive and then suddenly people started buying this stuff same and with moby dick moby dick sold 10 copies while herman melville was alive which and it's copies. but people look at that and they, they look at it for the value of the of the story whereas for a piece of that art story, right? for a piece of art like Dali everybody knows his personality and knows that he was kind of crazy and they, <laughs> right. they, they think of his mustache uh -huh. and um, 
like people know that the history and the personality, which is maybe why maybe one of the things that artists need to do is brand their personality and make sure that they're acting in public consistent with that so that it's it's romanticized. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you need to spread, I mean, and not actually do it because I love your girlfriend, but maybe you need to <laughs> spread the rumor that you're like this fantastic womanizer. Yeah. That that yeah, um right. that you or that you come from this like maybe you need to create this romantic background where like you were in a South American military uh, or insurgent group, and that it, that that's why you that you that's why you knew Spanish, but you had such a horrible experience. You don't speak it anymore. <laughs> yeah. One of those things where it's like so hard though to do that. <laughs> as as artists, I've talked about this too. As artists, we really have to keep it real because we're we're constantly examining ourselves in this in this meditative state that we we find ourselves in when we when we're working. We're we're constantly examining our decisions, our our uh, our life, really, and 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 when we're doing that, we could pick out. It's easy for us to pick out the the spots where we were being kind of fake or uh, having honest relationships with with people who we were involved with, or 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 those sorts of things. So it becomes difficult, like especially for me. I don't know. Maybe it's easier for other people, but like I'm. I'm constantly trying to keep myself real that if I feel like I step out of like who I am for a second, and like if I start to act, mm-hmm. I'll almost check myself. Just be like, you're, you're not being yourself right now. But you, we do, we but do, there, yeah, we do that, that all the time. Thing, right? And it's, it's the, it's the same. There's a great book, which I think you would love. It's called uh, the late Mattia Pascal. By Luigi I want to write Carino. down the other book that you mentioned earlier. I'll, ch- I'll get it in the edit. Okay. Um, yeah, but the late Mattia Pascal is by Luigi. One. Oh, Rise of the Creative Class. Yeah, the late Mattia Pascal is um, this book. On the cover is a couple of masks, and it was this uh, this Italian guy. And basically, his idea was that we are always constantly putting masks on, regardless of who we are and where we are, regardless of how real you think you're being with yourself. Mm-hmm. Everything is still a mask. So you're act you're wearing a different m- mask right now with me than you would maybe with uh, Jackie this afternoon. Okay, yeah. And for me, the problem the problem that I'm having is that we're being recorded. So the mask that I'm wearing to talk to you and to talk to this microphone, Yeah. Uh, and possibly whoever else might hear this, my parents, for example, or my kids, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, we have this... this mask that we put on that is we're act we're always acting well i'll tell you what with that said another (coughs) since i i I keep saying as a reoccurring theme of the podcast is is really focused on honesty and 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 sharing and expressing these opinions that we have Mm -hmm. um without fear of judgment like so for instance like i i've told stories about eating mushrooms and and doing things that i normally wouldn't tell people like my grandma is on my facebook Sure. I don't need to have a conversation with my grandma about eating mushrooms sure. necessarily, right? But for me to not talk about it for for myself and the idea of keeping it real would be to admit that there's some sort of shame behind the the actions that I that I'm or the the decisions that I'm making. Mm-hmm. So part of this has really been about opening up and being honest, which has been a tremendous weight off my shoulders. Like really expressing how I feel about certain things, which you know I'm the type of person who doesn't really have that that big of problem with doing that too okay. at all. You know, like I'm pretty vocal about my opinions, but there's certain things that I've always like kind of kept 
hidden away or like certain things that I wouldn't share with a, a large group of people. And now right. at this point, I'm like, well, why not? You know, maybe somebody connects to these things that I'm talking about. And I don't have to be, I don't have to have shame or, or have fear of judgment or persecution mm-hmm. from people because of uh, some sort of disagreement or a different philosophy in life, you know. But that's still, I think that's still, uh, it's the still same thing as still consciously choosing a mask. Yeah. Because if you're naturally reticent uh, and you don't want to share as much... Uh-huh then now you're conscious, consciously choosing to be the actor who is sharing. Did you feel comfortable? After we started, I know the mic like, makes you feel a little uncomfortable at first, but um, as we get going, I think we, it loosens up, I've noticed. Yeah, it's not that bad. It's, um, it's a little bit interesting, and I'd, I'd be interested in doing more of this um, just because I think that the actual act of sharing is important. I think, though, that um, the idea that this is going out, like I know that you're saying, like, we want to be more open, but at the same time, we're also consciously or consciously or unconsciously thinking about the future. And for me, it's one of those things where I don't want to say for posterity because it sounds so, so egotistical, but so historical. Yeah. But at the same time, this, this sort of thing, I mean, um, it's something that I'm very, I am very conscious of. Um, so I'm, I'm, I've only cursed a couple times, whereas in our normal conversation, this, this episode, (laughs) in our normal conversation though, like, I mean, last, last year when we went out to lunch, I mean, we were probably cursing all the time. Yeah. It's not that big a deal, but as soon as the microphone goes, you want to say one? No, I'm okay right now. Say the F word. Um, Just that one out. There we go. (laughs) See, I gotcha. There you go. Um, well, let's start to wrap this thing up. I want to thank you real quick. Yeah, um, thanks for Last year, uh, a lot of our conversations that we had um, about life and, and philosophy and sort of getting by mask, and this thing. Different mask. Um, was, was extremely helpful. Like, re- like, this last year, I really focused on, on uh, improving both body and mind, which uh, we... St- in fact, last year on the 21st, we went for a run, which was my first or second run as going from 205 pounder to now I'm I'm 180 right now. Okay. I should be 175 but the holidays <laughs> put a couple extra pounds on me. But I wanted to thank you publicly for oh, a lot man, of no. a lot of that inspiration. Um, particularly pleasure. a lot of things that you you exposed me to a number of different things. I think the um <laughs> like the Frankel book, the um oh, man's search for, for yeah. meaning. Yeah. Um I still talk about it. Like I really? read it after, right after you, you uh, actually I audio booked it, so I didn't really. Read it. <laughs> no, but I sit in traffic a lot, so it's like <laughs> audio books are perfect for me. Good. Um, and I still use it. Like I, I recommend it to people all the time, and I really focus on it when I'm trying to have discussions about what freedom really is, because we have some very strange ideas about uh, freedom in terms of our sort of American association with. Declaration of Independence and uh, freedom in terms of a government's uh, sure. gift to you or a military's gift to us. Sure. Where that book really showed me that freedom is something that exists in your mind. <clears throat> and freedom is based on your idea of what's meaningful to your life. Mm-hmm. You know, So I could find freedom anywhere just as, as in the same way that dude found freedom in a, in a, concentration camp which 
you know, whenever I talk about this idea, that's what, and I, I sort of set people up when I'm having this conversation because <laughs> they always, whenever we're talking about like real freedom, they go, well, what about uh, the Jews in the concentration camps? And I have this whole book, you know, <laughs> knowledge of, of what it was, what it was like sure. for this man sure. and, and what type of frames of mind that you can have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it totally helped me in, in even furthering myself sort of from this uh, typical mainstay of society. Like it, it helped, like I could think about that book and a lot of times, you know, like when I'm sitting here poor, worrying about bills and those sorts of things, I think, well, look at this, this set of freedoms that I've, I've bestowed upon myself and have accepted in, in terms of my creative processes and being able to do art uh-huh. for a living and right. to be able to live a life that I've chosen. Writing's not getting me any money right now. Yeah. Um, but I feel like right now, for what I've been doing, it's preparing me. I, I picked up a Brett Easton Ellis novel yesterday because um, people say that I write like him. Oh, yeah. Um, which I'm kind of disappointed about because I really don't like his writing style. Well, I like what you said about like that you're preparing for something. Because there was something about this last year <coughs> um, when I started exercising and getting into shape and mm-hmm. sort of like the, the, the conversations that we've had about getting our minds in, in, in better states. Mm-hmm. Um, that I've been telling people that it feels like I'm preparing for, I always say epic. I know that's not the, what's that? How do you pronounce E-P-O-C-H? Epic. Is it an epic? I think it's a new epic. Yeah. I so, so. But, uh, I feel like I'm actually preparing for something. I don't know what. Um, I've, I've, I've romanticized it in a way that it's like maybe life on this planet might get a little bit more difficult. And I think it, it probably has to do with my romanticism with the pre-industrial age where we had to survive on our own and sort of rally around the family and take care of one another and and utilize utilize the land and thing and feed ourselves and and there was a there was a larger sense of, of uh, personal responsibility that I feel like is sort of lacking in just just in the ability to go to the store and buy groceries there lacks uh, personal responsibility in providing for yourself even though we are providing for ourselves, it's just a new facet of that. Or, you know, let's say in the 1800s, mm-hmm. you had to have yourself a garden, you had to have some livestock. There were certain ways, that, things that you had to go through to, to be able to provide for yourself. Or a business that would allow you to trade for those things. Right. Now, obviously, we, we have those same things now, but we're, it, it seems as though this, this idea of, the, the, of preparing for an epic is, the, is thinking that what if if we had to devolve back to to that idea mm-hmm. in that let's say grocery stores no longer exist tomorrow how do you go about surviving you know and it feels like if uh if i'm in shape and i'm able to run 2 miles to chase after a deer then i'm more likely two to miles. be you know, <laughs> you, know well, you know what i'm saying you know i'm more likely to be a survivor okay sure and it feels like internally like my system is telling me Okay, here's what you need to do. But one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, which was uh, I was something I noticed this year. In I exercised really hard uh, starting December 21st, the, the day the, we weren't running, the winter solstice. Oh, the day was of it the solstice? Okay. Yeah. And I started again the day of this winter solstice. Um, but okay. I worked out really hard and got in really good shape over six, over seven, eight months. Um, 
and in the fall i i fell off the, you know i got up to this really high plateau of of the best shape i've ever been in ran on that plateau for a while and was like oh shit this is easy <laughs> i could eat some carne asada burrito no <laughs> and then sort of went off the other side right and went downhill and sort of into a lull of of consuming fatty foods and not uh sure. exercising that sure. much and what i noticed was that this wasn't just a a singular occurrence a lot of other people who had also been recognizing exercising and getting in shape and doing good things for their body over the same period of time that i was um also fell off at the same period of time that yep. i did and stopped exercising mm -hmm. and so while i was watching all these people exercising at the same time of me i was like they're training for an epic too they know something is up like it felt like it was a, co a collective idea of let's get our bodies in shape and stop putting this poison and bullshit into our bodies because mm -hmm. it's killing us. But then I noticed everybody fell off at the same time. So my thought was, I wonder if it has become, if, if that occurrence happens collectively because our bodies still instinctively know that the winter is coming on and that maybe we need to conserve some extra energy and conserve some extra fat. And that genetically our bodies are saying, all right, you did really good for eight months. Let's slow down a little bit, as opposed to just our lazy brain saying, you don't want to get up and run again. Let's just relax and, and watch TV and, and eat a donut. It's possible, but I also think my, my, my thoughts were that first, you noticed a lot of other people preparing for what you call the epic. And I'm my question is whether you were looking for them because it totally could have been the car thing. Like you buy a car and then you see <coughs> the car everywhere. Right. It very easily could have been that. But there, there's been a lot of studies. Than that. Yeah. There are studies coming out that, that if people that are happy, hang out with happy people, uh -huh. people that are miserable, hang out with miserable people. And that happiness on, I think they've been doing this study through Facebook, happiness through social interactions is happiness is contagious basically. Uh -huh. And so is unhappiness. And that, um, maybe, you started look. You started picking up on other people exercising, and maybe you didn't pick up on all the people that weren't exercising, or before you hadn't picked up on on people that were exercising. Whereas suddenly you and I, you picked that up on from me, uh -huh. um, or you picked up that I was exercising, and yeah. whatever reason, I can't even remember why I invited you to run. Yeah, I don't but, know because that was my first <laughs> run. How the hell did that happen? I mean, like, what what was that? What what was it that I thought to myself? You know what? I'm going to make Mike Maxwell run. Yeah, you shouldn't have had any sort of <coughs> preconceived notions that that was a plan that I had. I right. Think. Of all the things, like, what what was it that suddenly I was running, so I said, I think maybe I didn't have a lot of time, and uh, my ex-girlfriend was here, so I needed time with you alone. Yeah, right. And I probably knew that she wouldn't yeah, be that interested. Yeah, that was the only period of time you had. <laughs> with all due respect. Right, and you left, right? So I think you left that day, didn't you? The twenty first? Yeah. No, I stayed through Christmas. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah you were here too, We ran like right. two or three times, because it was like thirty two degrees in the morning. It was colder here than it was in Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was really really cold. Um, and I was not prepared for that. <laughs> but it was um. You had some. I saw your goosebumps earlier. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, but uh, my yeah, my first thought is maybe you're noticing. But what's interesting but I do... though about that too is that these people <coughs> who I was noticing were people who were close friends of mine who I know for a fact weren't exercising beforehand. So maybe they picked that up from you. It could be. And I definitely did in influence a lot of people to start moving in that direction because I started promoting these things that I was doing, particularly sure. like juicing. Um, 
became a huge, I, I, I feel like uh, a huge part of my weight loss was due directly to the fact that I was drinking as many fruit juices as I was. Because you were like making juicing the fruit every day, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like going to the grocery store and buying juice is like buying a soda. You might as well just drink yeah, a Coke. It sure. tastes better. It's just as much sugar. I'm making, uh, I got the Jackal Lane juicer. Yeah. So you just shove yeah. all that fruit Absolutely. right through there. And it, Have the same it, one. It's fantastic. And it literally, I believe, <coughs> I think, I try not to have too many beliefs these days, I think that it actually created weight loss just from the nutrients and, and oh, okay. ingesting the proper okay. the proper foods and the proper hydration. Okay. And in that I could have, I could have drank juice for a week and <clears throat> lost weight just from that. Not and not so much that I'm not eating a large meal, but literally I, I have this idea in my head, whether it's true or not, that the juice was actually helping burn the weight, burn the fat. Oh, off. well, or else because it's funny you mention that. Um, my friend Carl Lewis, the runner. Yeah, actually, we were supposed to run. We've uh, we did the uh, we did the Akron right, Marathon a, two years ago. That is a, a high <laughs> a high standard to set if you're a runner and yeah, being named Carl, Carl Lewis. Lewis. He um, but he recommended that I read the Zone or enter the Zone. Uh-huh. And basically, one one of the first ideas I picked up from them is that when you're juicing, you're taking out all the fiber. Um, you're taking out a lot of the stuff that your body still wants and craves. Mm-hmm. I haven't been juicing as much recently just because I'm eating whole apples and whole tangerines and bananas and stuff yeah, like that. Right. Like, um, I'm just I'm just eating it whole rather than taking those I've nutrients. I've been doing the out. same thing too. Instead of juicing, you mean, or in, in yeah, addition? lately I've just been eating the fruit instead Straight. of juicing. Yeah. And so this the this book points out that you're taking out something that is natural in the fruit mm-hmm. and leaving something else, but your body still wants the the fiber in the apple. It still yeah. wants all that all right. that stuff. That's the thing, though, with the Jack-O-Lane <coughs> juicer, you get a lot of that good stuff. A lot of the, yes. it gets a lot of all that good stuff out of there. But it's like, what's the point? Why not just eat the apple and the tangerines and the, you know, uh, the because, oranges? And... Because you can juice a whole plate full of fruit and have it in a singular glass and get a, a very large portion of those nutrients, a good portion of those nutrients down, where I, I make so much juice that there's no way I would eat a whole plate of that fruit. Of carrots or something like that. Yeah, I would. There, there was, sure. Well, you know, I make a big concoction of everything. I I get all the juices, of all the fruits that I like together, and, and put them in there. But when it's chopped up, it's literally a mound of food. But I wouldn't it... sit down and eat a whole bowl full of fruit. When you juice and you drink juice, first of all, you're supposed to almost drink it as if it's like wine, right? You're supposed to take really slow drinks. You fill your mouth and like swish it around. Oh, really? Because the juice will, through your tongue and through your membrane, it goes right into your bloodstream. Okay, sure. So while if you're just eating, our digestive tract kills a lot of those good nutrients and it doesn't have, it gets Hmm. metabolized before it has the opportunity to, or whatever. I say, I'm I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to have the proper terminology. So that, the benefits in juicing are, are just that, that it goes right to the bloodstream. That it has that opportunity first. Now, of course, if you're eating an apple, you know, you have that opportunity as well because you're chewing the fucking apple in your mouth. Yeah. But it's like sometimes you just chew a couple times and swallow it. Sure. Where a juice has, it's almost like an easier digestive process. 
Okay. But there, it, granted, you do lose some of those those things that you get from, like, yeah. let's say, the skin of an apple. Right. Or, right. It's the ability to get through all that fruit and ingest as much as you're supposed to during the day because it's so hard. It's hard to drink the amount of water that we're supposed to drink a yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. Like Definitely. you have to try. Definitely. I mean, and I've tried, and I, I don't really, <laughs> I don't do it. Like you have to think. Okay, now I'm drinking another glass of water. That's why I think. Um, what was it? The. Uh... Now jeans, and now my, I have a SIG uh, bottle. I just aim to drink a couple liters of water out of those a day, just because, like, I have to. It has to be a conscious goal. Yeah, and like I'll be I'll be sitting in my office. I will have only had a cup of coffee in eight hours, and then I'll be like, you know what? I need to drink some water. I'll pound a liter, and then I'll pound another liter yeah. before I go. Um, but yeah, you have to make a conscious effort. Um, and that's what's that's what makes the juice so great. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's end with juice, Nate. Nanzer, if you're listening, yeah, <laughs> he will. I, we didn't do the live version just because I was doing oh. the stream. Oh, issues. right, right, right. I'll right. put. A, I'll make a note of it. Um, <laughs> let's plug some of your stuff. If people want to go see some of your writing, sure. What's the best way for them to find that? Uh, you'd go to clevelandsandwichboard.com. That's C L E V E L A N D S A N D W I C H B O A R D dot com. Um, so that's the Cleveland Sandwich Board. I also, I, uh, I am the American correspondent for the London Review of Breakfasts, uh, and Malcolm Eggs should be coming out with, uh, the Bible of Breakfast soon, so you should definitely think about purchasing that if you live in the UK. Nice. Um, I also write for The Turning River. It's The Turning River, T-H-E-T-U-R-N-I-N-G-R-I-V-E-R dot com. Uh, and that's the fiction blog. Um, myself and uh, a bunch of other writers are writing short 500-word flash fictions uh, based in Cleveland. Um, can you can you promote uh, – you did the one blog with your buddies about living frugally. I went searching for yes. that and I couldn't find it. Do you remember Oh, man. What? I think it's uh, like welfareweek, somebody... welfareweek.com if I'm not mistaken. Uh, basically, there was a – the East West Side Ecumenical Ministry in Cleveland had a project where – uh, they had volunteers who lived uh, on an equivalent of the same amount of money you'd get when you were on welfare, which at the time I believe was $26.50. And so basically we were supposed to do everything. We were supposed to spend only $26.50 on food and tobacco and per alcohol week? for a week. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we had different goals. My goal was to eat very well. Uh, my friend Mitch wanted to eat and get really, really drunk every <laughs> night. And I think my friend Tom wanted to eat and um, also figure out a way to smoke weed. Well, it's a really entertaining blog, <laughs> and I think it's it's actually really educational, too, if you want to, you know, I think it's a good challenge. I'd like to I'd like to try the challenge of, of only spending that particular amount. We should amount get you, we'll get you in. I, they just did it again, um, I think about a month ago, and I wasn't able to participate because uh, I was going out of the country or something. But, um... Yeah, it was it was very interesting. I'd like to do it again, also, just yeah. as a as a personal thing. But um, it was it was very interesting, and it was amazing to see what's possible on twenty six dollars and fifty cents. And I'll tell you what, how I'll, much uh, work it takes. I do a blog for each uh, podcast okay. guest, and I'll find as much as this as I can, and, okay. I'll, and I'll post it on the blog so that there'll be links and stuff. But I definitely want to find that uh, that story again. I was looking for it. <laughs> All right. All right, my friend. Thank you very much for doing the show. Thanks, Mike. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it.
that your hat can't fit ya. Either I'm with ya or against ya. Format bench ya. Back through that maze I sent ya. Talking to the rap inventor. Nigga with the game type fifth that flame right. Spell my name right. B I double G I E. Iced out, lights out. Me and see the Leo. Getting hand for some chick he know. See it's all about the cheddar. Nobody do it better. Going back to Cali strictly for the weather. Women and the weed. Sticky green. No seeds, bitch, please. Papa ain't soft. Dead up in the hood. Ain't no love lost. Got me mixed up. You drunk them licks up. Mad cause I got my dick sucked. And my ball flick. Forfeit. The game is mine. I'ma spell my name one more time. Check it. It's the N-O-T-O-R-I-O-U-S. You just lay down slow. Recognize a real dawn when you see one. Sipping on booze in the house of blues. I'm going, going back. 